TFS episode number 164. This is Greg Duncan. I'm Gordon Beaming. I'm Paul Hacker. Gentlemen. How y'all doing? Good. And yourself? Doing well. It's good to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. It's good to have you back. How, how have you been? How's the gig treating you? It's it's good. I'm I'm on the road right now, and I'm taking a little break at my lunchtime to to join. <laughs> cool. Where are you? If you can, disclose. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. Oh, nice and nice and warm then for you. Oh yeah, beautiful in the middle of the summer to be stationed here. <laughs> it could have been worse, man. You know, last week, week before last, before that, it was it was it, it was hot. It was like you know, gates of hell kind of hot. Brutal hot. Yeah. yeah. And Gordon, how you been, my friend? Yeah, I'm good. Um, enjoying some rest. I've I've been training quite a bit the last couple of months. Did I see and your Facebook page that you did like what you did one of your runs? I I, I did a, a a triathlon like two weeks ago, uh-huh. just as a because for the last like six weeks I'm supposed to be doing triathlon training, but then I'm very bad at going out and actually doing triathlon training. <laughs> so so then I entered the events, which forced me to do triathlon training. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this weekend is the, is the big one for me. So I've got, I've got a triathlon on Saturday and then I've got a marathon on Sunday. So it's interesting. Yeah. I, I've got something a bit more crazy than that in Feb. So I just need to test what my, where my fitness is at. Dude, that hurts me <laughs> just thinking about that. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, gentlemen, we've got a great host on, and this is going to be an interesting show because it's, we're going to be very agnostic. But before I get into that, Dave Harrison is joining us. Dave Harrison's a senior application development manager working for Microsoft Premier. As a development lead and project manager, he spearheaded cultural revolutions in several large retail insurance organizations, making the leap to agile and continuous delivery. An enthusiastic promoter of release manager, chef, puppet, Ansible, Docker, and all of those other tools, he believes very firmly that, as with agile, the exact tool selected is less important than the people and processes in place and ready. On a personal note, he's the proud father of two beautiful girls and has been married to his lovely wife, Jennifer, for 23 years. Congratulations on that, Dave. That's that's a good milestone. And is based out of Portland, Oregon, United States. He enjoys fishing, reading history books, and in his spare time, often wonders if he should be doing more around the house versus goofing off. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. So first of all, I'm going to go get totally off the rails now. Um, your LinkedIn alias rogue agile why rogue agile uh that's way back in the midst of time i I had a good friend of mine eric stott and we were thinking about starting up a consulting company and that was going to be uh the the topic um one of the guys i actually interviewed for the book was called uh, the it skeptic and so i think that whole idea of being rogue and you know a skeptic and kind of a pirate kind of it appeals to us in the dev community so (laughs) yeah and your blog url why uh, drift boats. That's like a, it's an Oregon thing. We have the McKenzie River here in Oregon. It's a great trout fishery, and um, I love drift boats. I think they're great, and it's just kind of. I have a good friend of mine I'm named Jorge. He's called Sequel Chicken. It's just kind of a distinctive little name. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is a drift boat? I'm I'm a city boy living and growing up in Los Angeles. So I have no idea. It's kind of it's an interesting design. It's kind of it looks almost like a rocking chair in the bottom. It has okay. like a very shallow use, so it it's really nimble. Um, tips over pretty good. You have to be pretty good to oars, you know, to work it. But uh, we have the Deschutes River here in the in middle part of Oregon, and a couple times I've um, 
either lost a boat or come close to it, and that's always exciting. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about Class Three rapids, yeah, it's fun. Wow. Yeah, I enjoy fishing. I probably do it. it I'd be a better husband and father if I did it less, you know. <laughs> but I do. I do enjoy getting away every every month or so. I've been fishing like once or twice, I think. <laughs> what what so about people, some people find it really tedious? I, for me, it's just a way of kind of getting outside and, and kind of I feel the the cares of the day kind of melt away. Um, yeah. So if you ask my wife, she would tell you I I get away probably uh, less than I would like and more than I deserve. So again, going totally off the rails. Uh, Paul, I, I think I know based off your Facebook page what you enjoy, but uh, share with listeners, what do you enjoy? What do I enjoy? Yeah. What's your guilty uh, pleasure or unguilty pleasure, your spare time thing? Uh, you know, there's a couple things. One is um, I love to play the banjo. I'm not the best at it, but I love my banjo. Um, the second one is festivals. I love going to festivals and hanging out and just kind of absorbing different kinds of music and stuff. But the banjo is like what Dave was saying about getting out in the wild. It's just kind of relaxes me. It gets my mind off everything because I got to concentrate on not only courting a banjo, but picking a banjo. And that's a difficult thing to do sometimes. Hmm. And Gordon? Um, yeah, running and and now uh, doing other crazy stuff as well. <laughs> Cause, I mean, because running a marathon just wasn't hard enough, apparently. So now it's doing triathlons where I could finish off with running a marathon. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not sure if I – well, we're not at work, right? Nobody's at work. How old are you, Gordon? 28. Okay, good. I, I don't – then I don't feel – I'm 52. So I, I, I don't feel so bad that I'm running – not running marathons, I guess. Well, well, maybe. On that note, there's a guy that at our running club – Oh, shut up. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he's like he's like sixty something. Oh, yeah. And every single race that I run that's with him, um, I mean, last night we did a time trial, and like he was just in front of me, and I was like, I just need to try and beat him. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> like he he just destroys me at every single run that I do. That's great. That's actually love hearing those kind of stories. Well, I actually don't love hearing them, but then again, I do have a bucket <laughs> item that I do want to run a marathon one day. I. But yeah, one day is it. All right. So, uh, Dave. You, and what you, about you, Greg? Oh, uh, my guilty pleasure. Um, I, I, I read voraciously. I, I live in my books, science fiction, fantasy, lit RPG, uh, apocalyptic, post apocalyptic. You know, my Kindle is my closest and best friend. And whenever I lose or break it, I, I'm heartbroken and without an oar in the water. <laughs> Yeah, I don't need the audio books. I can't. I can't sit and read. It's hmm. like even when I wrote books, I didn't. I didn't read the books. It's like, I just, it's like go, go, go over the chapter, and make sure it works. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I did it right the first time. Like, I, I mean, I wouldn't have done it wrong the first time. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm thinking actually. I'm. I'm. I'm looking at you know because of my age. I'm looking at what's career number three in my case, and I wonder if I can't do something with books, you know, becoming publishing house or do something like that. I'm not going to write them because I'm way too lazy for that, but uh, <laughs> something around the books where I can use that. My uh, Goodreads goal is to read 130 books this year, and I'm at 94% of that so far. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah. When I say voracious, it's like I yeah, pretty much No one reads else. as much as Greg Duncan that I know of. <laughs> I know no one that reads that much. I know, I know people that are in publishing that don't read as much as Greg Duncan. <laughs> yeah, I have no life. Yeah. <laughs> outside of my books anyway, I guess. Um, yeah, I almost cried. I was at a, 
an MVP summit, I think, or build one of the two. And I woke up in the morning. I went to look for my Kindle. I couldn't find it. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. I started shaking. Where's my Kindle? Where's my Kindle? And I finally said, well, maybe I left it at the place I ate at last night. And thank God it was there. But uh, yeah, that was, I'm like thinking about, can I order it FedEx Express? (laughs) That's kind of a problem, you know? All right. So Dave, you mentioned your book, man. T- tell us about this book that you're writing. Um, well, this, it's it's been quite a journey, Greg. Um, I think what I learned from this, just apart from you know learning a lot more about DevOps, um, everyone has one book in them, everybody. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I just it's not like you have to just sit in a coffee house and wait for inspiration. Uh, you don't have time for that. So it's just you have to do it like Stephen King or Neil Gaiman, and you sit down and eight, 8 in the morning, and then you just grind it out. And for five or six hours, you get those couple thousand words down on paper. And then so at, at the end of nine months, you've got a pretty good-sized book, and it's really just a pile of bricks at that point. And after that, once you start, like, rewriting it, that's when you get, like, a pretty decent-looking house. <laughs> so I, I love the experience of writing a book. I'm going to be really happy when it's over. Um, <laughs> you know, I get my life back. Uh, but it, it's been, I, I love the book. I think it's a great, uh, it's going to fill a, a hole in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got so, so many great books out there like Lean Enterprise, Phoenix Project, um, Accelerate. Those are all wonderful books, but they all assume that you are a CEO level person. But what if you're not that person? What if you're just like an engineer, or a developer, an operator, or a team lead? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have anything in writing to say, hey, we know you can't change everything, but what are some things you can do that could really help improve like working life on your team? So that was kind of where I was a, f- a few years back at a different company. And when I left that company, I started thinking about, you know, what, what could I do? You know, what, what could one team do in one year? And I'll never forget, I was giving a talk on, on DevOps, and this one engineer raised his hand and said, Dave, I'm not a, a bigwig. I just part of a team of eight. What can I do? And I said, oh, well, you can't do anything. You have to wait till you, you get executive support. And I, I went home, and it just bothered me. I was like, that's that's a terrible answer. You just made that person feel like, oh, all I am is a drudge, a surf, you know, and hauling around sacks of potatoes on the in Ukraine. You know, it's it's, but it's not that way. I mean, we I do feel like we have a lot more power than we think. Um, even going back five years ago, instead of wasting all that time blaming the operations team for falling down the job or blaming, you know, the QA team for this, what could I have done? on that team to help improve the quality of the work I was doing. There's a lot you can do. So um, I feel like this book is going to fill that um, that hole mm-hmm. to kind of address like DevOps for the rest of us. We don't nice. work at a unicorn. We're just, you know, just an average Joe. Maybe we lead a team of eight. Maybe it's a little bigger, but we're not a king or a queen. We just, you know, just have one team that we can work with with one year. Nice. And the title of your book is Achieving DevOps, a 12-month journey to better, safer, faster and it's due out in spring 2012? Uh, 2012, 2019. I think probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you wish, huh? <laughs> might, might, be, might be in winter, might be in spring. Right. It's, it's coming out for me, Chris, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, so, and what's the, 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 and, you know, you're writing for our audience. Our audience, they're not CEOs. They're not, you know, uh, uh, directors of development. Uh, you know, they are, uh, 99% of them, you know, grunts just, doing the work, you know, they're accidental administrators because they were the last ones standing closest to the TFS server or, um, 
You know, so this that, so that sounds like a great book for our listeners. Yeah, it, it's funny. You know, going in, I had all these preconceptions, and there were so many parts about DevOps that I found, frankly, quite annoying. Um, and then as I worked through the research and started talking to people for interviews, I found out a lot of those preconceptions were just so wrong. Um, so I had to roll them back. A lot of the standard knowledge that we take for granted is actually just a, 180 degrees from what really is true in practice. Well, uh, give an example of that. Well, for example, um, one of the things that really annoyed me was, oh, it's so fuzzy. You know, we don't even have a definition of DevOps. <laughs> That's so lazy. It's so it's so Eugene hippie. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, can't we just say what it is? I mean, everybody loves the Agile Manifesto, right? Uh, What's wrong with that? So why don't we have a set of principles that works for DevOps? Why isn't there more a prescriptive recipe, right? <laughs> Do you guys ever feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, I do a hundred percent. I agree with that statement a hundred percent, especially when I'm talking to my customers and they're asking that question um, and I don't have an answer for them. Yeah, I do feel like um, we can't. There there was a saying that um, there was a saying that uh, Tolstoy said and Anna Karenina. He said um, he said all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So in other words, if you're going to be successful, like, for instance, if I look at happy families, they all kind of tend to do the same things. Um, unhappy families are each of them chaotic, dysfunctional in their own unique, exotic way, right? And that's what I found when I started doing my interviews was that, um, like, you talk to Google, they're very prescriptive. Like, if you become, like, if you're a site reliability engineer, SRE, the book is terrific, right? They have all this literature out there. and It's very, very, it's a recipe you can follow. Um, we've had a lot of companies, some of them have adopted it successfully. Microsoft has SREs, um, but others have fallen on their face because they're trying to be Google or they want to be Amazon, and there just isn't one single recipe for success. But there are some principles. When I was doing these interviews, there was a couple principles that kind of stood out as being, this is what a happy DevOps family looks like. So is the book a bunch of recipes, or is it uh – Interviews. What's what's the the basics? Yes, <laughs> basic. <laughs> we're gonna have um, it, it's basic story of, of one man on a team mm -hmm. um, over a year, and he starts out. The situation looks pretty grim. They've done agile, but nothing's getting out the door. That's that's the problem that DevOps is meant to solve. Right? Is okay. we're producing work so much faster, but it's just not. It's not making it into production at the rate we need. So how do we fix that? So as, as time goes on over a year, he starts sticking in things like continuous delivery and a better use of source control. Um, he, he folds in testing. Um, he starts doing end user support, like with having his developers take part of the load. Uh, because part of the, I think it was John Allspaw said, DevOps is empathy. And I, I believe that deeply. When I look back uh, a couple years back, I didn't have enough empathy for the people that were supporting the <laughs> software that was churning out the door, and they hated me, and they, they should have, you know, because of that lack of lack of empathy for understanding their point of view and what it takes to support new features. So so it's it's kind of it's it's a novel, but we also have a lot of like there's a lot of interviews that kind of uh, we sprinkle throughout it that okay. they say here's why things worked out for the team the way they did. Nice. And, you know, that reminds me, and I mentioned on the show before, you know, Brian Keller, uh, 
used to school me on when I was asking, what is this DevOps stuff? What, what is it? Why is dev doing this? And, and like, like he said, it was, he basically told me, Greg, it's not about the dev side or even the continuous delivery side. It's how to make your development stuff operational, make it supportable. You know, yes. Putting in the telemetry, yeah. putting in the effective logging, putting in uh, uh, feature flags. You know, it's it's having, like you said, that empathy towards <laughs> the, those poor guys or girls, and you know, they're going to be <laughs> supporting the damn thing. You know, I, I having come up from the tech support side, I totally understand that. that, that right. Deal, so, and and that problem is so interesting because I mean, you look at Microsoft, right? And and we were having so many problems getting our software out. I mean, Windows Vista, right? Mm -hmm. Hello. <laughs> um, and we weren't listening to the customer. We were very haughty about it. it. It cost us dearly, and it's still costing us. But the VSTS team did this transformation where they, they aligned across functionally. They basically kind of folded the QA team in, so there's no, no long integration cycle. And they did something fascinating. They said, we're going to take a look at the number of engineers on the team and the number of bugs as a ratio. And we're gonna say, if, if you go above, say five times that number, um, for, for like five times bugs, um, they call it a bug to engineer ratio. Mm -hmm. They say, that's how we know that you're falling behind when it comes to technical debt, and we're gonna gate you. We're gonna, we're gonna at least have a conversation, figure out what's happening to quality. So that was the Microsoft solution, but you look at Google's solution, it's totally different. They said, look, reliability is the only thing we care about. So we're going to put this team of engineers called SREs, and their main job is to support software maybe 50% of the time. But if we see you guys violating your SLA, we're going to actually stop your releases. So you're going to have to, you know, it, it both kind of are very unique solutions to the same problem of reliability. Uh, we want to get work out the door. Velocity has to happen, but we, we can't allow the devs to just run away anymore. That's not working for us. It's not sustainable. Right. I mean, also, like earlier, you sort of mentioned, um, and Greg was sort of alluding to the same thing now. Um, I think, like, what lots of the problem is when guys look at DevOps, they're like, well, this is how Microsoft does it. This is how Google does it. So that's how we need to do it. Or they'll choose someone like Amazon, they'll be like, they release X amount of times a day. So we need to do that. Or they look at Google and they say, well, Google's policy is everything goes in containers and nothing runs outside of that. So they say, that's what we need to do. And they push so hard trying to be those other big companies who like potentially don't like uh, share their journey with everyone of how they got to where they are. And then the guys trying to like, in the next three months, we're going to do everything in containers. It's like, well, yes, you're going to fall on your face if that's how you're going to approach the problem. <laughs> yeah, Gordon, you're so right. I mean, that... They, they have something called microservices envy, right? Where everybody wants to split up their services into tiny little pieces. But guess what? Sometimes that doesn't work. Um, yeah. Sometimes we're trying to solve another company's problems, not ours. And it has nothing to do with like, who cares if we're delivering like a new release a thousand times a day or 10,000 times a day if our customers aren't getting services reliably? Or yeah. they're not getting value in the time. Who cares how exactly. the number of times we release? The customer doesn't care. Exactly. That has nothing yeah. to do with DevOps. Yes. Sometimes I find that it's like there's a solution looking for a problem. <laughs> you know, um, cu customers will look at it and say, you know, this is what Amazon, like you said, this is what Amazon does. This is what Microsoft does. Therefore, this is what we should probably be doing. So let's adopt what they're doing, you know, and, and that's not really 
beneficial, nor is it what they need. You know, there's companies that will never deliver at that rate, and, and that's okay. They don't need to. Like like was said, you know, as long as we're delivering that value out to the customer. And I had a conversation with a, with a company yesterday when I was telling the Microsoft story, and I often deliver the Microsoft DevOps, tra- you know, transformation story, you know, and having that discussion that this is, you know, predicating that discussion with this is something that Microsoft found that works for Microsoft. This mm-hmm. does not necessarily mean it's going to work for you. Take it for what it's worth and then go for, go forth. So I think it's real important that, you know, people understand that. Yeah, Paul, that's that's so true. Like, like in the book, the guy's manager is like, look, I let you do Agile. That worked. DevOps is just a fact. I don't want you even using the word. So throughout the book, this team lead doesn't even use the word DevOps ever. He just says value delivery. And I think that's such, like, then we get away from what well, we need to define DevOps. Oh, what what does DevOps mean? Well, why, why does it matter? Let's just talk about a particular value stream. How long is it taking us to, do, to make one line of code change? Does it take us three months to get out the door of production, which is not unusual, right? That's our problem. So can we map out the work that we're doing, like do like a value stream analysis, um, and show here's where the real problems are happening. And guess what? It's never the tool that's the problem. It's usually the handoff between groups. Once you expose that, there's this great book called Making Work Visible. Once you expose it, it's, it's like a sticky note kind of an exercise you do in a conference room. It takes you a day, but it's, it's shocking in, in enterprises how few executives, development leads, IT people have ever looked at the flow of work end-to-end from idea to out-the-door in operations. And really taking a look at how long it takes those artifacts to flow from start to finish. So, Dave, you've been at Microsoft about four and a half years now? I believe that's right, yes. So, have you've been in the middle of the transformation. Yes, yeah. And how has that felt? It's a company that has treated me really well, and I'm really proud of our transformation. I feel like um, Microsoft's strength was that we recognized, for example, when the Internet came, we realized, wow, we're, we're behind and we pivoted. That's a generative organization to me. You know, it's not a pathological or bureaucratic one. Um, the same thing is true like with when we made the switch with the program teams to VSTS and we, we reconfigured and we pivoted. That's a lot of companies cannot make that kind of a transformation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I work a lot with Donovan Brown and the guys in the VSTS team. And I'm just, it's, we've come so far from back w- the way TFS was back in the early 2000s. Um, to me, it's an entirely different project. And um, I, I'm really happy we have a product like VSTS that I can stand behind when I'm working with customers. So would you say you and your team are primarily like consumers of the Microsoft VSTS instance? Or? Well, so I, I work for Premier, and mm-hmm. Microsoft Premier is, is like a consulting right. um, company. So what we do is we engage with customers over not just like a onesie, twosie type engagement, but over many years. And we take a look at their, their current, for instance, their development lifecycle, and we analyze it and meet with them on their needs. And then over a year – for the, that particular contract, we, we say, what can we knock down as a roadmap to get your work out the door faster? So that, my job, I have like one of the world's best jobs. I really do. It's very satisfying. I, I love meeting with customers and um, I have some, I can't get it going to names, obviously, but a lot of the companies I work with, they're very big companies and they're struggling with the same things that we did with pivoting. So how do we form around a single mission? Uh, that's a that's an interesting question. And, and I love, I just love getting, getting to know people and um, kind of understanding more what's stopping their work from um, 
really having the, the best efficiency. Now, Paul, how is Dave's role in Premier different than yours? I mean, obviously, you're so, not in Premier. Well, Dave is Premier. Um, my, I am the DevOps CAT, Customer Advisory Team. Okay. Uh, we are like a quick strike team where we come in for two-week engagements. Once the customer has purchased uh, a Visual Studio Enterprise licenses, they're, they're uh, enabled into this, what they call the accelerator program, and they get to have what they call a fast track, a DevOps fast track. So myself and usually with partners will come in, and these are vetted partners that are um, certified to do these fast tracks, will come in and do these fast track two-week engagements to get them started. And a lot of times we'll take a slice of their uh, their project and actually do some real work and, and employ some real DevOps practices. Hopefully, at the end of the engagement, they've de- we've delivered some value to them that they can take back to the organization. But the, the whole idea of bringing the partner in is to carry on for the long term, like Dave does, that long term year, you know, year after year type of uh, relationship building where we, we back away after the two to two weeks and go on to the next uh, fast track. The partner's there to continue the relationship. Nice. So I, I work quite a bit with, um, I had a customer last week that wanted to get more into IoT. So I engage with someone like Paul on the CAT mm-hmm. team. And we bring them up to Redmond, and they, they talk with the people who are actually writing the software around IoT. They do a hackathon over a couple of days. So guys like Paul are like diamonds. I, <laughs> I try to keep those relationships going. Cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. We're, we're about halfway into the show, and we haven't even started asking you any of the our, our questions and stuff. So I want to get into those a little bit, and I'm sure we'll go off the rail, and, and I doubt we'll even have time for our news items, which will make Gordon happy. But uh, – Um, I have to ask, as a veteran myself, uh, Mm -hmm. you had a a discussion point about what we can learn from the military and how they view requirements. Uh, You were in the military? No, actually, I never have. Okay. Um, I did meet some people from the military as part of doing this this book. Okay. And I found it fascinating. Um, I've always kind of viewed the military – I guess from movies is being very high bound and order driven and just do what I say. I don't want you to think. And that's the exact opposite of what reality was. What, what branch did you meet with? Um, met with some people from the Marines. Um, I also, there was a book called team of teams that I highly recommend. It's great to put, pop it on your audible. You know, it, it's a wonderful read. It very well written. Um, and it's about the fight against Al Qaeda and what, what, uh, the military learned there as far as how to structure their organization. That is a very powerful book. A lot of lessons we can learn in how we align our organizations. So I thought it was fascinating. But it was funny when I met was I met with somebody named Ann Steiner, mm-hmm. uh, and Ann was she works for DevJam. I think they're out on the East Coast. But she says, look, we don't just you know say here's the order, go do it, because that gets people killed. We we describe the intent, and then and then we do something called collaborative framing. We, well, basically the the individual people are allowed to kind of figure out how to solve uh, that problem. And they can challenge these orders or they can challenge the way it's being framed. Um, so there's a lot more freedom than we think. And she says, boy, I wish it was like that more with developers. I wish there that instead of telling us, you know, here's how you're going to do that and here's your 100 pages of requirements and being straightjacketed like that, tell us the mission. Help, you know, work with us and help us kind of uh, – we want to be able to obviously be given a purpose, but um, – as far as like how to figure out about how to execute that mission, that should be left up to the teams. And what I found in interviews with a lot of companies is a lot of managers are just not comfortable with that level of delegation. 
Yeah, giving teams autonomy is real difficult. I had this discussion yesterday with the team uh, leadership, and and some of their questions were, "Will you expect me to not manage them?" And that was not at all what I was saying. You know, it's just you have to give your team some autonomy, though. Yeah, it's hard, especially when you're talking about people who, uh, you know, they have MBAs, and they're saying if we don't tell people what to do, they're just going to sit around and do nothing. So there's that <laughs> there's that theory X versus theory Y thing, right? Are, are people inherently lazy and we have to beat them with sticks or give them carrots to have them do their best work? Or are people actually inherently self-motivated? And the job of a leader is to kind of provide a better framework that when there's problems, instead of coming down on people like a bag of hammers, are we doing a blameless post-mortem? Are we saying, what are the lessons we've learned? And guess what? It's never down to Greg checked in this code and breaks, broke stuff. Let's fire Greg. No, usually it's we didn't have enough guardrails up. Our, our, our processes are complex, and they're not safe. How can we improve the process? And one of the things that I like to suggest to my customers to book to read, since we're talking about some books that we suggest, is the book Drive by Daniel Pink. Oh, um, I don't know yes. if anybody's ever heard of that, but it really talks well about autonomy, mastery, purpose, and how people are motivated. Um, and I, I really highly suggest people read that book if they're managing teams of people. I totally agree. Um, Aaron Bjork on the on the VSTS program team brought that book up quite often. It was a big part of our transformation at Microsoft. And I, I love like autonomy, mastery, purpose, and the idea that no, you don't get to decide what you want to do. Management sets that. But guess what? You you know autonomy, like mastering your your space, that's totally in your in your. Uh, you can choose basically what specialty and how you're going to go about doing your, your work. I like that framework. Now, one of the things I learned in the military and I walked away with, it was many years ago that I was in, but uh, there's a huge difference between being a boss or even being a manager and being a leader, you know, and it's I, I've, the people that I've seen truly succeed in businesses are those that are a leader and they don't have to be the boss of the boss, boss or the boss, 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 you know, but the people that lead their developers, lead their teams, um, that's when effective things can happen. If you're just a boss and you're slamming people because they checked in the code bad or they broke the build or whatever, yeah, you may be able to get stuff done for a little bit, but long-term, it's just not going to be a happy place. Yeah, going, yeah, we, going back to that question I was first asked, you know, um, do you have to have executive, like, air cover to get this yeah. done? At a certain point, you do. You know, at a certain point, it can't just be like a guerrilla type or a grassroots exercise. You have to have, because there's going to be outages. You need to have your manager, management level and executive level setting the pace. So for us at Microsoft, that was vital. Uh, at Google, it was vital. Everywhere we, we look, um, at a certain point, you, you hit – there's always a point where there's like um, – I, I think one of the thought leaders out there mentioned there's – it's like a, almost like a stormy, norming, performing stage. So he says we see like – or settlers of Catan, there's like settlers – or pioneers, there's settlers, and then there's a town planner. So you have, like, the pioneers come along, and they catch fire, and they, they do a little DevOps thing here and there, and that's great. That's your guerrilla effort, right? And then you have the settlers come along. It's a little more organized, a little more methodical. And then along comes your executive leader, and he says, let's do this town planning style. We're really going to make this a company-wide movement. So I do feel like kind of like you don't go directly to being a caterpillar um, or to be a butterfly. There's like these inter intermediate phases. I feel like with most companies, they're already going through that transformation just in little bits and pieces. And then at the right time, along comes, hopefully, uh, a, a leader that can set the pace. Very good. Very smart. 
So, Dave, what can you tell us about like how Microsoft handles um, like production live site support? Uh, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, we found it important not to have basically a separate team that is strictly handling production issues. So we, for instance, on in the VSTS team, um, each each group, say six to eight people, maybe ten, they're uh, broken up into an F team, F for Frank, and then there's an L team for live site. So the F team is focused on new features, and the L team kind of works on like disruptions and lifecycle support, and they're rotated. Every sprint, you have a different couple people handling lifecycle support. Um, so that, and that's how you can kind of schedule on your lives. Now, you would think the developers would hate this. Most companies I talked to, they said, we faced a lot of hassle from our developers when we asked them to do share the load of lifecycle support. Um, but we found it to be important. Um, uh, on, in Microsoft, our teams own features in production. Uh, Aaron said, we hire engineers who write code, test code, deploy code, and support code. In the end, that's DevOps. We want to have our developers have a relationship with the end user, to have empathy with them and their, their situation, to not let bugs just kind of slip to the back because you're working on something cool and shiny. Um, so if you start with that setup where they're kind of plugged into the end user support and at least handling part of that load, uh, maybe you rotate it so that there's not such a burden because coders don't want to be handling support 24-7. That shouldn't be their life. But at the very least, I think at Google they have at least 5% support um, for their, their product teams. You have to have some of that pain get shared by the people writing your features. They have to walk in the shoes. Absolutely. So, so along the lines of support, then, Dave, um, what, how, do you, how does Microsoft handle like a hot fix? You know, a very serious support issue comes up, and they have to manage that one. Um, how is that handled differently than just your everyday support type of issues? And that's an interesting question because it's kind of that's a big test for the um, how viable your CI/CD pipeline is, right? If if there's a, a hot issue, you know. What do you have to pull the emergency brake and do like a, a a manual release, or can you use what's currently there? So um, I'm going to be frank right here and say I, I don't work on the VSDS team, so I've never had to do this. Um, but they they do releases using things like Canary uh, releases, where and we we release kind of in these rings. We start with our internal people first, so we're eating our own dog food, right? And then we gradually kind of set those feature flags so that these features are gradually turned on. Um, so that over time, say, I think we might have, uh, I think approaching about 20 of these different rings. It's a very gradual release, and we monitor and we check, because a lot of times our users are the first ones to know there's a problem. We unashamedly do testing and production. Uh, and that way we can kind of, if there's a problem, we can, we can easily roll back. Feature flags are something that is almost continually brought up by people as being such a great safety point where we can release many, many times a day, but when we turn it on, that's totally up to us. So it decouples that and makes it much safer. It allows very, very easy rollbacks. Now I want to jump on that real quick, but does, you know, feature flags aren't a total silver bullet because they still have to be maintained and over a year or two or three or four those uh, the amount of feature flags piles up right yeah that got brought up many times is that uh, maintaining those those feature flags can be a pain of its own is it a silver bullet no that, that thing doesn't it doesn't exist but I, I will say it 
it was spoken of very highly, not just at Microsoft, but in, in many different enterprises that um, feed, things like launch darkly, mm-hmm. which integrates very well VSTS, uh, people raved about them. It seems to be worth the overhead. Right. Paul, did you have a question for Dave? Yeah. So let's kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk about like just sprints in general. Um, so why, why when we're talking about working in sprints is delivering at the end of the sprint so vital? I, I talked to a customer yesterday and they said, well, we don't deliver something at the end of every sprint because we don't have something to deliver. And we got into this very big discussion about what, how that should look. But I'm curious, you know, why is delivering at the end of that sprint so vital? That's really a great question. Really a great question. Um, Aaron, Aaron told me, listen, here's the saying we live by. You can't cheat shipping. You can't cheat, cheat shipping. So in other words, if you deliver working software to your users at the end of every sprint, you're going to learn what it takes to do that and what pieces you need to automate. It, it allows you to focus on the right thing. If you don't ship at the end of the sprint, human nature kicks in. We delay, we procrastinate. Hey, I've got margaritas waiting for me. Um, it allows us to, it, it basically allows us to kind of leak in those bad habits from the past. So a couple of days ago, I interviewed someone. He says, I was talking to a developer and this guy says, oh yeah, I check in my code many, many times a day. Well, that's awesome. How long does it take you out to production? Well, you know, from there, it kind of goes into QA hellhole, and there's some integration. <laughs> you know, we kind of need to leave it a staging for the users to do acceptance testing, and that, that takes – so it, when it comes right down to it, yeah, he was checking in his work many times a day, but then after three months, they'd have to do all this cherry picking and do this massive release quarterly. So really, his release cycle was not three hours. It was three months. And it's surprise, surprise, there's all kinds of nightmares around having to back out features, or we're not sure where this bug got introduced. The integration hell that you and I are, are so familiar with. Uh, r- shipping at the end of every sprint is vital. It's just not, uh, I think it's wrong to focus entirely on your cycle time and the number of releases you do per day or per week. That's not, that's not a, a great indicator in some ways. But in other ways, it is something good to keep in mind because if your releases are getting delayed or dragged out, that's a danger signal that something is wrong somewhere in your release pipeline. So I got to ask: Is you know a lot of the times, like the VSTS team does three-week sprints um, here at my job, my day job, we do three-week sprints. But how do you feel about? Uh, I call them gap weeks or, you know, three-week sprint and then a deployment gap week and then a three-week sprint and then a deployment gap week. Is that a stinky smell? Am I screwing up? So what, what do you typically do in that gap week? That gap week, at the end of the sprint, we do have a target called staging where it has to be deployed to staging. It has to be able to get to staging. But then the the production release because we have a whole number of environments and requirements that, you know, we can't deploy on, you know, Monday, but we have to wait till Tuesday and, and so on and so forth, that, that we use that week for the true production deployment. Mm. Um, you know, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you, Greg. I'm, I'm, hmm, I'm not sure if I can just come in and I think I'd be doing you a disservice if I said that is a stinky smell. It's a terrible practice. I can tell you the shorter the sprints, the better agile and DevOps work. And um, I worked with one person um, uh, out of New Zealand, uh, the, <laughs> the IT skeptic, Rob England. And he says, look, I don't even get down into the weeds when it comes to tools. I don't care about that. He said, we had one um, PubSec company. And you know how entrenched PubSec can be. 
and they had hundreds of uh, software out there that they were trying to release. And all they did, they didn't add any tools. They didn't do anything. The um, CIO came in and said, we are releasing in three weeks instead of our usual six. And on this date, every software is going to get released. And he said half of the half of the software that they uh, had in their managing made that gate, right? But he said forcing that behavior to where we could get released down to a single push button and then trying to get it to where it's happening more often, suddenly releases became kind of more of an afterthought. He says without adding any tools, just by focusing on how long does it take us to get a release out the door, uh, this PubSec company got to the point where they were they had a lot less overhead. It was that's a successful DevOps transformation, and they didn't buy a single. It's been a single dollar in new software. So I, I'll say, you know, if you want to take that week afterwards to kind of do a recap, I'm not saying that's that's wrong. Um, I do feel like a lot of the DevOps principles is around continuous integration, and if you're handling all the right behaviors correct, you should be able to speed up that release cycle, where you don't have a what we call them tsunami releases, right? where it's this huge bulk release. And I live on the Oregon coast, or I, I go <laughs> fishing there at least. We have tsunami warming yeah. warnings. What happens after this huge surge of water? It takes you months and years of cleanup. So if you have that kind of a cleanup cycle going on, something's wrong with continuous integration. That might be a smell there. Yeah, luckily, actually, we're pretty good with that. You know, that's um, so I guess you know, it's a release production every month. And, and this is, the three week thing is a legacy due to we have multiple teams and we don't want do working on different products, but there's shared resources between them and we have to stagger them. And we had three teams. So we'd stagger one team would start a sprint one week. The next team will start a sprint the next week. And the next third team will start a sprint the third week. And so everything was uh, staggered and stuff. But, uh, and then we threw in this deployment week, which we also use uh, heavily for long backlog, or not long, but detailed backlog refinement, storyboarding, yeah, yeah, those kind of exercises, along with the production support. But uh, sometimes there's a real reason behind these kinds of artifacts, and you shouldn't pitch it if it's not causing you pain. Right. You know, um, Gordon, aren't you the one that does triathlons? Yep. How would you feel about doing a triathlon if you were if it's a three-legged race? <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Wouldn't that? <laughs> <laughs> so I I was I lived that um, at a different company as a project manager. Oh shoot, four years ago or so, five years ago, uh, we were doing a three-legged race. We had another uh, team with the old. We were in charge of the portal, right? The new stuff, and they were the old team. But we had to do our releases in tandem. We were told. Um, we had to, and so it involved these, because their architecture was creaky and old, untested, a nightmare. We had to live that nightmare with them. Every couple, every month or so, we'd have to do these massive releases, and it was painful. I mean, it, it would take us all weekend, and there'd be weeks and weeks of post-release cleanup. Uh, now, we use Chef. We had great release management. We had awesome unit testing. We had great integration testing, but you wouldn't know it because we were shackled to this dead cow, you know? So it made us all look bad. And what I wish I could go back in time because there was no need for us to be that tightly coupled with the old system. We could have used mocks and fakes. There's all kinds of ways of extracting out so that you can test that old functionality, but you don't have to do your releases with this hard coupled dependency. Yeah, there's, I was chatting to a friend a while back. Um, he works at one of the, the big South African banks. And he was saying like they've like adopted DevOps and that, and he was telling me about their story 
Um, and they, they basically, they're released through, I think there's like six environments that it ends up hopping through. But then it lands up at staging, which is there sort of just before production. And then like they don't actually release to production because he said they were releasing, I think it was every two weeks or every three weeks. But it, their cycle gets them to that just before production. I said, well, then what happens from there? Like surely, I mean, it has to go to production. Otherwise you're not really, I mean, you're not, you're not getting to the environment where you can actually get your customer feedback. And then they're like, no, then that gets handed off to a completely different team. So like no one that's involved at all in the, the software dev, like their ops team is literally like, they don't even know the names of the guys in their ops team. And they basically then take those artifacts that were released through all these many pipelines and proven to work through all these pipelines. And then they manually deploy it into production. Yeah. I, what did uh, what did Jeff Bezos at uh, at Amazon say? Communication is terrible, right? Yeah, it's terrible. And that's the cool thing about microservices that a lot of people miss. A lot of people go right to Docker and Kubernetes. It's always oh, it's so cool. But that's not the real secret. Is a two pizza team rule. You, you only want to have a team is big enough that you can feed with two pizzas. I can eat just about a whole large pizza by myself <laughs> when I'm really hungry. You know. <laughs> so this is a very small team of six to eight, and that's how you that's how to get done because you have this very tiny functional group you don't have a lot of uh, chatter and cross-team collaboration um, at the VSTS team we do have to have some uh, like if we're going to break a contract for one of our services there has to be some communication but it's very lightweight because we truly that that team size of six to eight people appears to be like that's our effective limit for how humans imperfect humans can work together without getting all glommed up in, in bureaucratic nightmares. Yes, I mean, we, we, I was just saying, I mean, we spoke like about all this havoc, or sometimes all this havoc and whatnot. Um, I was just wondering, um, like, how, how, how do we, like, I mean, obviously, trim down, like, your words are getting lost here, but um, if we talk about, like, technical debt, like, how, how do we trim down technical debt? Do we, I mean, Greg was saying, like, they have the, the one-week um, sort of deployments and stuff. Do they use that? Do they, like, do you need to take, like, okay, our code's really getting hard to maintain. Do we take six months to fix it? Like, how do we, how do you handle technical debt? Well, uh, um, I can tell you the one thing not to do. And that's pull the plug and say, we're going to focus entirely on, um, you know, bring up our test coverage or addressing this technical debt. The VSTS team didn't do that. They said, nope, we're going to keep on releasing. We're not going to, to bring anything to a halt. We can't because our job is to produce value. Um, so a lot of these teams, they, they at least have the usual pain point is that there is a separate dashboard and set of values and incentives for the team handling operations in IT and the team handling QA, and the team handling development. If we're not on the same page, if we, we don't have the same playbook, don't have the same queue, we're not going to – those bugs are just going to sit there in the back and be little dust bunnies. You know, we we absolutely have to have the, the same queue, and that technical debt needs to show up. Things, not so-called non-functional requirements like security, um, they're all performance-related. We can't allow them to kind of skid to the back. So I'd say probably the one, the one most important thing to do is to make that technical debt visible. So, for example, as a project manager, I knew our, our test quality was terrible, but I could never get the executives to care enough to devote resources to it. So you know what I did? On our scoreboard, every time we do a retrospective, every two weeks, here's where we did great, here's the things we sucked at and we're going to improve. On the top right, there's a big red box, and it showed our, our current unit test coverage level and our integration test coverage level. 
in a big box, um, probably about a two inches square. All of a sudden, I had executives coming out of the woodwork saying, Dave, what can we do? Can we give you more resources? How do we get more testers? What's wrong with our framework? So I'd say make it visible. If you have the same queue and it's visible to everyone, that technical debt is going to get paid down. Engineers hate, um, especially if you make like the number of bugs visible as a scorecard. Engineers hate have, having a number out there, and if you give them a number to like improve to, they're going to kill themselves trying to trying to meet it in terms of quality. So if you make it visible, the problem, a lot of that work kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, I mean, when you say make the number visible, I was just thinking at the previous company I worked for, we had um, like this, the amount of open tickets for the uh, department up on a screen, and uh, basically what we did is we said, cool, when that number goes down, we just played an audio tune of like the minions, like, like <laughs> it's like there's like a whole bunch of the sort of positive minion sounds, and like one of those one of five plays when the number goes down, and when it goes up, then like there's all the negative sort of sounds that play. And like guys are like everyone, sh -sh -sh -sh, and then they close, and it's like watch, 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 and then like it ticks over and goes down, and there's like hey clapping and stuff, and it's like it really like motivated the guys to like push for the numbers going down. I mean it's a, it's a small thing, but it it was interesting to see like how that small thing changed everyone's attitude towards trying to get the number down. Yeah, monitoring metrics is such a, we have a chapter two of the book on it, and it's fascinating. Um, but a lot of times we leave that to the end in our software. It actually should be first. How do we know, so, you know, what's a true minimum viable candidate for us here with this release, and how do we know it's going to be successful? Um, what is the actual user experience? We focus so much on server metrics, like, hey, what's our response time? Uh, what's our CPU usage? What's our, you know, how tasked up are our machines? But the users don't care. You know, they, they just want to know how many 500 errors have we had? You know, is the service reliable? What's what's the actual experience like there in Indonesia at 3 in the morning? You know, so uh, you have to think very carefully. I know we did it at the VSTS team about what numbers you choose to expose. Um, but I know having our having the people covering phones looking at, for example, um, the sales conversion numbers, that's been huge for Amazon. Um, having visible dashboards to show the actual effect of your work, um, put a lot of thought into it. Because if you focus so much, I remember I used to just like, oh, we got to have perfect uh, burn downs. Oh, I really drilled in on that. Oh, you know, let's let's take a look. How come everyone's waiting until Wednesday to do this and that? And then all of a sudden my burn down charts look perfect. Well, what does that prove? You know, nothing. It's just it's just uh, it's easy to track, but it doesn't actually add any value. So be careful what you don't choose too many. Um, I guess metrics to care about. A lot of companies I talk to, they they primarily focus on lead time, cycle time, and something around reliability. Yeah, I mean, like just on that also, like um, what I've also found, like if guys are starting to build a new service, they generally they'll, they'll build the whole service, and then the last thing they think about, like you're saying, is like monitoring, or even how they're going to do their CI and CD stuff, and then it becomes this this big event with I'm like well. If I'm starting to build something new, it's like find new project in VS potentially, like get that into source control, sort out the full pipeline of how this is going to get to somewhere, and like any monitoring that needs to be on there, put that on, so that as we as we're developing, we can we have some metrics that we're building on. Because you get to the end of like building this product, and okay, now we need to figure out how to deploy it, and now it's, it's such a complicated thing. 
Whereas if you were just like tweaking your deployment pipeline, for example, as you go, it would have just been a non-event. If you were monitoring, say you're using uh, SonoCube for your technical debt, you would see the, the pattern of how you're adding that technical debt instead of like on the last day, cool, we've added SonoCube and what's what's the trend looking like? Well, we installed it yesterday. It hasn't really changed that much. <laughs> like the, the, by focusing on like what, what I consider all the important things like so late, you lose a lot of value um, in what they can give because you have to, I mean, the value comes with time, like with it running over time. Yeah, it has a cumulative effect. A lot of times you wonder if all this effort is worth it, but um, I know when I look back at, at when I was a, a team lead and we instituted version control and we did Kanban and we started looking at better release management and and you look back after a year and it's like, whoa, that's really made our jobs a lot easier. Uh, but you don't recognize it at the time. It's, it's a lot like climbing a mountain. So I got a question for you. We got to wrap up because we're going way long, but I, I, I got to ask this on it. Um, <laughs> you know, I've painted my organization as somewhat bleak or not, but it's actually pretty awesome because we do, you know, we have CI builds, we have nightly builds, we have uh, the release builds, anybody can build them. We've come from, you know, deploy, it runs on my desktop and deploy from there to, you know, VSTS uh, build and release management, uh, including SonarCube for all of our projects. All of our teams are trained that the very first thing they do in the first sprint for a new project is they, you know, do the skeleton project. Uh, and check it in, and we build our, all of our pipelines. Uh, but the, the one of the problems that I am having is selling the telemetry, the performance monitoring uh, uh, thing. I just I've been singing this song to the point where they just they they, they block it out now. How how can I change <laughs> that song so so they hear it? So is this about delivering a better message to an executive in ways that they understand, or is it about metrics specifically? It's it's to, actually to my development team because we have a lot of autonomy, and we have close support from our, uh, our our CEO, and then you know my boss is the director of development, and he heads up all the development. So there's not a lot of layers, which is nice. But you know I I, I just we have I, I keep seeing an application insights. It's like look, let's just do application insights because as a starter, right? Why yeah. not? Yeah, and, and they're all like, "Oh, we've never done it before. It's scary." Well, I send them all these Sync Fusion books and I, you know the websites. It's not that hard. Hell, I put it in a WPF application that we deploy here, and I've got great statistics and in application insights. Who's using it and when from what OSs and and what of our internal networks and all that crap for a you know a cheese me WPF app. Uh, so, but. I, I, and I can show them the statistics. I can actually show them a live example. And I can answer the question, who is using your app, Greg? These people here are using it. Our other applications that we're delivering and, and doing all that thing, it, we can't truly effectively answer that question that application insights or a tool like Datadog or any of those other third-party tools could answer. And, and I just can't get them excited about that. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, hmm. So I got to tell you, like, we talk about security and monitoring in this book, and both topics bore me to tears. <laughs> uh, can I just be frank? <laughs> I'm a developer. I just huck it out there. It's my job, right? <laughs> it compiles it. Shit. Sorry, yep. neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's it's um but i i've learned as part of the team it's really not that uh, as part of writing this book it's it's not as hard as we think it is it's actually quite painless and once you start doing it like at etsy they're like it's it's addictive when you i mean think about our jobs we're it's, it's not like we're a contractor or a consultant right um uh we can't say look at that building over there i, I made that building you know five years from now most of our work it's it's done in sand it's like a sand castle it's gone um so to me, it's like adding monitoring makes it so much more real beyond just the help it gives me in debugging and finding out problems. Um, it, it's also, it's, it tells me here's what the user's experience is like. And I'm not just, you know, kind of building a castle in the air kind of a, a, a thing. As far as getting people excited about it, there, there's a couple books I could think about um, that, that are quite good. Uh, one's like The Art of Monitoring. Um, I'll tell you right now, sometimes I just do stuff and I wait for permission later. I don't know if that's applicable, but like it, at one company, it was I was just a team lead. I, I couldn't institute Agile across the board, so I, I used the power of envy. You know, I, I took all these, like I bought a couple monitors and I started setting up, you know, here's what our monitoring is showing us, for example. And I had it facing towards the, the open hallway and people would walk by and all of a sudden I'd have other, other leads and directors saying, what is this? And I'd explain it. And they'd go, huh. And they'd walk off. I guarantee you, Greg, if I was trying to, like, push monitoring or metrics, it wouldn't have gone even five inches because Dave's trying to push this. But because um, they could kind of view it and see, I didn't have to say a thing. I could. I had some of it in my retrospectives, and they were kind of viewing it. And gradually, you'd see almost like dandelion seeds. These little, uh, you'd start to see other teams doing Agile, their own, their own version of Agile. And I was fine with that, you know, but the creative power of envy is a, a powerful thing. If maybe just kind of start with something free and start broadcasting it, don't push it. Don't push monitoring for the sake of monitoring. Just say, here's what this is telling us. And you might see a little better adoption. I love that idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. It's a tough one. Um, Practical Monitoring by Mike Julian's another one. Okay. Uh, he says, look, he says a lot of people misunderstand the whole point of monitoring. They think it's to churn out emails, but it's really beyond <laughs> that. It's, it's for asking questions. You know, it, it's for saying, uh, you know, what what is really going on behind the scenes here? What's the value it can drive us? Yeah. Um, noisy monitoring systems suck. They're yes. terrible. It's like, it's like a chihuahua, right? You know you're in trouble when the chihuahua stops barking. That was the way SCOM was for me. <laughs> back in the day but we want big dogs we want german shepherds so when they bark you know there's a real problem when someone gets a page at two in the morning it's an actionable alert so definitely it's a training process to say guys stop just sending out these cya cover your ass type emails we want actionable alerts and alerts is only one type of outcome for monitoring there's two others and those are uh we, we want to be able to do shoot I should have anticipated. That. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> maybe, you know, perhaps we need to do a pager duty or SMS alert. Perhaps we have logs to an internal chat room, uh -huh. custom website, or perhaps we're just logging it quietly in a corner where we need it later. But, but to actually wake up a human being or page someone, there better be something on freaking fire. I don't want to get any kind of an alert when the CPU is at ninety-five percent. Wake me when it's actually impacting users. Yeah, yeah, God, I, we've, yeah, we're in that right now, and and our our alerts are so the noise signal to noise ratio is just so horrible. Autofile them, and I look at them like once a week. Oh, look at all that stuff. You know, it's pointless. So that's the other thing that I have to show that we're not doing 
that. <laughs> that is not what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I come in on Monday and the, the site was down for the whole weekend. I went over operations guys like, what the hell, guys? Because we know it's not code. 95% <laughs> of the time, no, seriously, it's yeah. 95% of the time it's a patch. It, they were doing something to the network appliance or they restarted IIS and yeah. it, it just didn't, something didn't restart. It wasn't code, right? Yeah. And the guy says, yeah, didn't you get the SCOM alert? Oh, yeah, there it is. Along with 10,000 others that it looked exactly <laughs> like. I wonder what the function of this email was. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not alone in that then. <laughs> I, I, I think it's also like so important, like you said, like don't wake me if the, the CPU's at 95%. Wake me when it's impacting our users. Because, I mean, like if you think about it, you, you're hosting stuff in the cloud. You're paying for 100% of your CPU. You better well use 100% of your CPU. Otherwise, you're wasting money. Like if you can like efficiently use 100% CPU and there's no impact to users because that's how the system was designed, then what's the problem? Like, why do we need servers to be sitting at 30% CPU and, like, it's the same impact to the user if it's 30% or 80%? That's so true. Yeah. All right. So we got to start wrapping up. There's a feedback question from Mike Beckman that I want to ask you guys. And I gave him a little bit of advice on this. Mike works for a um, financial insurance company, and they've got TFS 2018 on-prem. They've been using it for a while, and he's interested in the code search, you know, the elastic search part of searching the code, and he's a little bit concerned about implementing it. Um, first of all, he's worried about the impact to the, you know, the TFS databases themselves, and then the impact, if he doesn't like it, of uninstalling it. My guidance was, is that um, it should not impact the SQL server at all. When you're, when you're building that index or searching the index, he's got about 120, uh, 250 people who are, might be using it. So it's not a small group. Would you say that would be a correct statement that if, uh, you have your code index, the code is indexed and you have a, you know, a user base of 250 people and they're using it, would that slow down like the SQL server part of TFS? I think. Potentially your initial index build might have like a slight impact, but I mean, not much. Cause also remember the, if I remember correctly, the recommended guidance is to put your code search on a different server to your, your primary, um, TFS. Right. And that has, that, that's in Java and it's got its own, um, its own like, um, scalable database that it uses. Um, I can't even remember the name now. Elastic my brain search. is fried. Yeah. Elastic search. Yeah. It's, sorry. It's quarter past 11 at night. So my brain is sleeping. <laughs> um, so I mean, with that being an, it's completely separate thing, like functionally while it's running, it's not even touching that SQL server. Um, at least from the way I understand it. Good. And that was, what do you, what do you think, Dave? Can I pass on that one? <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. No, that's okay. Um, you don't understand I'm an idea person. I never talk about specifics because I'm a manager now. <laughs> uh, good. Well, then, Gordon, that, good. Yes. Um, <laughs> Mike, Mr. Beckman, yes. Uh, um, in your environment with your user count, I would definitely look at um, a, uh, you know, a second server for your Elasticsearch on it. Uh, when I emailed you, I said one of the big problems that people have is on that server, wherever you install and set up the Elasticsearch, you will have to do the GRE, the Java runtime environment. And there's a number of people who are concerned about putting that on their TFS server. Well, if you put your search on a different box that's separate from your 
primary uh, TFS environment and put the GRE there, you're, you're, you're cool. Um, uninstalling it will also go smooth and not impact your uh, primary environment at all. So is there, Gordon, do you, is there a downside beyond purchasing hardware, a separate machine or uh, setting up a VM to install that search on it? Is there a downside of installing search? No, I mean, it's, it's quite easy to do now. Um, and like upgrades and that. So, I mean, if you, the, the, I suppose the tiny downside of having a different server is your, your upgrade path isn't just click, click, click. But I mean, with a bigger environment, your up, your upgrade path should never just be click, click, click. <laughs> um, I mean, unless, unless you just have a beast of a machine. Right. I mean, some people just decide we'll just scale up and we'll use like a stupid amount of CPUs on one machine, like, run everything off a of sand, like, but it's like, well, do, do you need that? I mean, our code search runs on a tiny VM. It's just so that it is isolated. Like, that's the only reason we have it is so that it is separate. And like I said, with it being on a separate machine, it's just easy to switch off. If for some reason we didn't like it, we could disable code search from TFSR, delete the VM, and there's cleanup done. Like, there's no impact then. Good. Now, Mike, the one thing that I, I know if Martin were here, he would say, and probably, you know, if Paul was still on the call or Mickey or pretty much anybody else, if you can, if you have the resources, do a backup. The exact same thing we would say if you're going to go to VSTS or if you're worried about going to TFS 2019 or, or those other, you know, versions that are coming out, you know, create a backup. Uh, there's a number of instructions on the web uh, on how to do that appropriately and then try your tests there. Not everybody has the hardware, the time uh, or capability to do that. Uh, but like uh, Gordon was saying, I have not heard any horror stories really at all with adding search, uh, removing search, uh, impact to the SQL databases. I mean, the SQL databases won't basically hardly be touched uh, you know, th they'll be read from because they have to obviously read the code. Uh, but your transaction logs and all that stuff should not be negatively impacted. Uh, so I, I would say, like you said, um, Gordon, I might give it a try. Yeah, I mean, like the worst thing that go that that I've experienced is that some weird chain of events, the Elastic um, data store got corrupt, and then you basically just reinitialize things and you're good to go again. But like you said, like. The SQL databases, it's just reads coming out of there. Yeah. So there's, there's no impact at, at all. I mean, obviously, I mean, assuming there would be more impact if you decide to start indexing more than like just your master branches. So like if you have thousands of branches on a repo and you decide you want to index every single one of them, like then you might need a bigger server for that. So I mean, it, it again, just depends on how much you want. Like for us, it, we keep, we index master generally only. Um, it's because we tr we're trying to quickly find where code is so that we can then dig deeper. Like we know, we'll, we know when we need to go into other branches, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, back to Mike. Yeah. You know what? It's not bad being paranoid. <laughs> you know, this whole thing was a sanity check and that's great. I'm hopefully our answers will help you a little bit on that. Um, next email, Rod. I thank you for your email. He he wanted to uh, let uh, me and Gordon know that the question that we asked and answered last week of his, uh, he was really appreciative of that answer. So that was great. Um, a long a while ago, when we had Sean Ferguson on, we talked about some of his other uh, plugins that he had. One of them was the work item autosave. Well, when we originally talked about it. Uh, 
it wasn't quite working. Sean had to update it. So Justin Miller asked, hey, when you guys, when can you update it? He cloned repo, but wasn't able to build the exception. Uh, Sean wanted to make sure you let, let us all know and let you know, Justin, that it's been updated and it's good to go. So it should be happy there. Uh, Travis, hey, I'll get those stickers out to you. I swear. I know it's been a while weeks and i lied when i said i'll send it to you the weekend after you sent it but uh travis i've got your email and, and same with you mike um I've, I've got your email here it's queued up it's the top of my inbox and i'm like a zero inbox kind of guy so having these things in my inbox just irritate the crud out of me so i'll get those out too so if um dave where's a good place for people to get a hold of you i would say uh driftboatdave.com um and you definitely also feel free to reach out to me at uh, dharriso at microsoft.com. And you mentioned something about possibility and early release of your book? Yeah. If, if you reach out to me, I can definitely put you on a listing and get you an, an early copy of it. As a matter of fact, that's how you and I hooked up. I saw your right. MSDN blog post or your <laughs> day. It's like, oh, hell, I want that book. It's like, you know what? He's a dev ops guy. We should have him on the show. And I'm I'm really it's been such an honor to be invited on this show and I, I love all the links there. Um, I wasn't aware of quite a few of these, so thanks so much. <laughs> this has been a real privilege. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to the all the news items and stuff, and I'll try to get. Uh, it it's not that, it's not that bad. I mean, this is the news. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one link actually. I'll make sure that we have in here, and I don't have in the notes, but um, Edward Thompson, Thompson without a P does the weekly roundup of DevOps news. And um, I'm going to have that, the, the the links to those. And if you're looking for DevOps news and stuff, it's those posts that you should really keep an eye on. Right? So, uh, gentlemen, I think that's a show. So, Dave, is your book going to come out in, in the audio format so <laughs> that I can read it? I, I hope so, Gordon, definitely. And I really am so impressed by your training, too. That's That's terrific. Thanks. I, I listen to audiobooks while I run. That, that's how I do my reading. Yeah, sitting and reading. There's other things I could do, like running for four hours. But yeah. <laughs> Me too. I, I I like listening to DevOps Cafe. There's a few other podcasts, and, and now I've got another one, Radio TFS. Awesome. Um, Dave, Gordon, I appreciate you coming on the show. Listeners, if you want to send us feedback, maybe get some stickers. I still have some stickers. Right? I swear it, I will get them out to you. Uh, <laughs> they really do exist. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, I send you not only Radio TFS stickers, but the DevOps stickers, the Donovan Brown DevOps stickers. So you'll get both of those. And I always send out a couple, if not more. So um, send us an email, RadioTFS at Outlook.com. We're on Twitter, of co course, at RadioTFS. We're on Facebook as well, slash RadioTFS. Voicemail, don't write this number down. Don't worry about this number. Just come to our website and you'll see the number. It's one four two five two three three eight three seven nine. 233 8379 Leave a voicemail and, and we'll try to figure out how to splice it into the show. Ladies and gentlemen, again, this thing... This podcast here is a labor of love, and your feedback keeps us going. We really appreciate it, and thank you for listening to Radio TFS. Radio TFS.